This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this edition of the program. What are the lessons and fallout from the Kyle Rittenhouse acquittal in the deadly Kenosha, Wisconsin shootings? What are the implications for the debate over guns, vigilantism, and racial injustice in America? Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. To say that the summer of 2020 was tumultuous is an understatement. After the chilling murder of George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, by white Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, people took to the streets across America to protest police brutality and racism. In August 2020, then 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse, a young white male armed with a semi-automatic rifle, traveled across state lines from Illinois to Kenosha, Wisconsin, allegedly to protect private property from being vandalized by people protesting the police shooting of Jason Blake, a black man, by a white Kenosha police officer. The VOA Newsroom reports that Kyle Rittenhouse opened fire in confusing circumstances, killing two men and badly wounding a third. All three were white. Charged with homicide, attempted homicide, and reckless endangerment for killing two men and wounding a third with a semi-automatic rifle, Rittenhouse pleaded self-defense and was recently found not guilty by a jury on all counts. Rittenhouse has since become a poster child in some right-wing circles where widespread protests in 2020 were falsely blamed on violent radicals and the anti-fascist group Antifa. Well, joining me to talk about the various lessons and many potential ramifications of the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, particularly the right to self-defense, are two analysts. Molly Saltzkog is a research fellow at the Sufan Center, a New York-based international consulting firm. Her areas of expertise include counterterrorism, white supremacy, extremism, and disinformation. And Olayami Olorun, she is a public defender at the Legal Aid Society's criminal defense practice in New York City. She is also an analyst on the Law and Crime Network and a writer. And both ladies join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Olayami Olorun, let me begin with you. What's your overall reaction to the verdict and your concerns over the fallout? So I wasn't surprised by the verdict, but I do think the kind of circular logic presented in the case basically flies in the face of anything we know about the self-defense doctrine. Self-defense allows you to use a proportionate amount of force. If you have a reasonable belief that somebody is a danger to you or your person, you can use about as much force as is necessary to stop them. So the idea that this unarmed man was so much of a threat to this armed man that he had to shoot him fatally four times is absurd. And the entire logic is presented that oh, what if he took my gun? What if he took my gun? And that's just not a reasonable base belief because it flies in our understanding, right? If you think somebody has a weapon, that is typically the person that is best suited in the situation, the person that is most safe. So you having a weapon and deciding, oh, the unarmed people are dangerous to me because what if they get it? Despite the fact that you are strapped, this weapon was strapped to him the entirety of the night. He's running, there's a frenzy, he trips, he falls. During the entire encounter of shooting not one but three people, his gun never leaves him because it's strapped to him. But yet we're supposed 
supposed to believe that this unarmed man needed to be shot four times. I think it's absurd, but more importantly, it opens up and invites this kind of danger to the protest and it legitimizes it on both fronts, right? Because not only does it embolden, you know, not just racists and white supremacists or anybody who opposes the Black Lives Matter movement to feel comfortable voluntarily going to protests and arming themselves and then saying they're afraid of the people they voluntarily chose to engage with and they'll be allowed to shoot first. Not only does that happen, but on the flip side of that, it also encourages protesters to engage in violence too. Because despite the fact that Black Lives Matter became the largest civil rights movement in this country last year, as of last year, there were protests happening in 550 different places in the country and there were protests happening every day that have persisted until now. So in all of that time, no Black Lives Matter protester killed anybody at these protests, right? And they haven't been inclined to. Even in the situation with Rittenhouse, he wasn't the only person armed at this protest. Other people were armed, but they chose not to shoot him. They tried to disarm him other ways. That's why Anthony Huber, the second man who was killed, used a skateboard, hit him and tried to run because he just shot and killed Rosenbaum. And even the third man who shot but survives, he has a weapon, but he hesitates. He doesn't go shoot at first. He points because all of these people are concerned, probably rightfully so at the time, of what the legal response to that would be and trying to avoid violence. And I think there's a lot that goes into keeping these protests safe. But now in the future, these protesters might think twice, you know what, here's a person that appears to be an antagonizer. They have an open rifle visible. Maybe it's best to shoot first because I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen, what danger I'm at risk of, and the law won't respond to it or protect me. So I think it's a very, very dangerous ruling that opens the gate for a lot of violence. Over to you, Molly Saltzkog, a very dangerous ruling which opens the door for greater violence. How do you see the verdict? No, absolutely. I mean, from a national security perspective, we know that domestic violent extremism is the biggest terrorism threat to America today. And within that umbrella, individuals adhering to what the government here in the United States label racially and ethnically motivated and violent extremism, which would colloquially be translated to white supremacists and neo-Nazis, posed the biggest danger. And frankly, what we saw with the verdict in the Rittenhouse trial is that it's been celebrated across the far-right extremist landscape online. Anything from anti-government extremists to white supremacists have celebrated Kyle Rittenhouse as a hero who was right in his self-defense, according to them, and it was right to take lives in a self-defense. And essentially the fear here that Olayemi so eloquently explains is from a national security perspective, it will embolden extremists on both sides of the spectrum and essentially become a legitimized of vigilantism and armed vigilantism, and that this will translate potentially to future violence in instances of protests, legitimate political protests, but with counter protests and so forth. Yes, I think Miami. Molly makes an excellent point, right? It's not just that he was acquitted or just that, you know, it's about his right to self-defense. It goes way, way beyond that. The people that are supporting Rittenhouse and are supporting this verdict are celebrating him. They're celebrating what he did. In a normal world, if we pretend, what we know the facts to be is that Rosenbaum, that's the first man killed, was having a mental health crisis. That is not in dispute. They are negatively stigmatizing it in the way that they discuss it. But we know that this is a man with mental health issues who was unarmed and having a mental 
mental health episode. So even in a world where we could conceive of the possibility that Rittenhouse needed to act in this way, he had to shoot him, he had to kill him, it wouldn't be something we would think is good, right? It would be an unfortunate set of circumstances. There's nothing from a logical perspective why you would celebrate the events of that night, but that is what's happening. They're not just saying, oh, this is a 17-year-old kid and maybe he doesn't deserve to go to jail for the rest of his life or, you know, he made a mistake being there or these circumstances are things that went out of control. They're not defending it from that perspective. Instead, what they're saying is this is an American hero. This is a patriot. They're vilifying the people that were killed in this and that's what's important here. It's the demonizing of the protesters and what they're doing and also celebrating the idea that people were killed. And I think that is the importance and how people are responding to it. There's been a lot of criticism, both sides of the fence, right? But especially when it comes to Kyle Rittenhouse being painted as a white supremacist. And I've heard a lot of discussion that the left paints it this way. But it's important to remember that that didn't come in a vacuum. Kyle Rittenhouse himself has been seen, photographed with white supremacist group, you know, the Proud Boys, his own social media, public social media at a point, espoused these white supremacist views. He associated himself with these white supremacist groups. There'd be an argument to be made if they wanted to make the argument that he was kid and he's poorly influenced and all these different things happen in propaganda, but that's not the argument they're making. They're instead celebrating all these choices, and that's what's really concerning. Yes, and during the trial, Olayemi, I believe that the judge struck down the prosecution's request for some evidence showing that Kyle Rittenhouse did have these associations. And also, I believe, but please correct me if I'm wrong, the fact that he was 17, too young to purchase a gun and actually was given this AR-15 by someone else. I mean, that would really raise eyebrows normally, but I believe that evidence was also not allowed to be admitted. Yeah, so two beautiful points. Yes, the judge wouldn't let them introduce the photos showing that he hangs out with the Proud Boys or doing white supremacist symbols. The judge said that he found it irrelevant. And it's not. He said, you know, he found it too prejudicial and not relevant to the case, but it obviously is. This case has a very obvious social and political context, not just because that's how the different sides have felt or made it out to be. That's what it's anchored in. Originally, this case starts out because Jacob Blake was shot multiple times by a police officer and paralyzed. And people, the Black Lives Matter movement, went out to protest that police brutality. And in comes Rittenhouse, who opposes that movement to protect property, because his concern was more about the property than the issues that people were fighting for. But But the judge wouldn't allow that in. You're absolutely correct. And that really hindered the prosecution's case. The prosecutor in the case actually didn't argue the case from the perspective of Rittenhouse being a white supremacist or a racist. And he actually did a lot to vilify and criticize his own victims in the case. He went for the strategy that Rittenhouse is, in fact, that the motive here was about trying to be famous. That's what was his motivation. But the only thing he really had to advance that point was Rittenhouse's own social media that said, you know, Brom trying to be famous, but he didn't go too much into it and all the additional evidence, which was basically showing how he behaved following the killings of these people, how the press front he went on, how he's been celebrated by the right, the different comments he made, the judge wouldn't let that in. And then when it came to, what was the other thing, Carol? Yes, the fact that, you know, he's underage to possess yes, a, a rifle. The gun. So the gun, and this is a beautiful point. I'm glad you mentioned it, Carol, because there's been a lot of confusion. I see this. There are a lot of people that think he didn't illegally purchase the gun because the charge was thrown out based on the gun. What actually happened there is the prosecutor mischarged. He charged him with a very specific misdemeanor where the specifications of the gun he had, the barrel was either too short or too long for it to qualify. So it was a particular technicality. But the friend who purchased the gun actually testifies, and he was charged. He took, I think, a plea of 
some sort, but it's what you would call a straw purchase. Where Kyle Rittenhouse lives, he legally could not purchase or possess that gun until he was 18 years old. So he had a friend purchase the gun for him, and the friend was supposed to hold the gun until he was 18. But then the friend was keeping the gun in his house. They had it upstairs for one particular reason, and Rittenhouse took the gun and we end up where we're at. So the gun was not supposed to have it. He was not supposed to have it at all. And instead, he takes this AR-15 and goes to this protest where he has no business being. And now two people are dead. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. Our guests are Molly Salzkog, a research fellow at the Sufan Center. That's a New York-based consulting firm. And Olayami Olorun, from whom you just heard. She is a public defender at the Legal Aid Society's criminal defense practice in New York City. We are discussing the fallout and consequences from the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, who claimed self-defense when he shot and killed two men and wounded a third in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in August 2020. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. But here's a shout out to one of our most loyal listeners, Evang Joe Kofi from Lafia in Nasarawa State, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our discussion about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. And I'd like now to turn to Molly Saltzkog. And Molly, I want to pick up on something that the Sufan Center wrote in one of its terrific intel briefs about the verdict. And it says that, quote, the open carry of guns as a political and social statement is among Western democracies, a unique American phenomenon. So too is this permanent political campaign that seems to run on endless anger, manufactured outrage and massive sums of money. And of course, the combination of the two, the guns and violent sociopolitical rhetoric really is very dangerous to a stable and healthy democracy. I'd like to know what you're hearing from the darker corners, the Proud Boys, the other white supremacist groups, the very pro-gun advocates who are celebrating this verdict and the fact that this underage person, Kyle, even though he's 18 now, at the time he was underage, carrying an AR-15 into a place that he knew was uh, fraught with danger. What are you hearing? Well, Carol, I think going back to what Alaimi said, there is very much celebration across the far-right extremist spectrum that we're seeing. This is happening both on mainstream social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, but a lot of it is taking place on more unregulated platforms, darker corners of the internet, encrypted chat applications like Telegram and Gab. But it's not only confined to the domestic violent extremism landscape here in the United States. And I think this is important for the listeners to understand that one of the things that I look at and I research is this transnational network that far-right extremists, especially white supremacy extremists, are building, largely with the help of social media, recruiting, propaganda, calling for violence, reaching from America as close as Canada, but as far away as Australia. And so we've also seen that the broader transnational network have picked up and celebrated the verdict, the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse. And we have, for example, prominent Americans who are part of this network, like Robert Rundo, who's somewhere in Europe right now, really latching on to this campaign 
called Kyle Was Right, which has everything from graffiti to merchandise with Kyle's face and his weapon on it. And this is used not only to spread propaganda about the hateful creed that some of these organizations and individuals adhere to, but also to recruit new members. But even more disturbingly, actually as a justification for further violence, calling for more violence against racial justice activists, against Antifa members, against political establishment and so forth. So in essence, what we're seeing here is a very unfortunate and dangerous combination of American gun rights and the debate that we're having here, the conversations, the very necessary conversation about racial justice that are needed in this country being co-opted by hateful extremists, using this as yet another sort of rallying cry for increased militant vigilantism. And it's spreading across the world, too. Molly's absolutely, absolutely right. And I think what's extremely telling, there's been this effort, I think, on the part of white supremacy is to gaslight you, is to tell you the reality that you're seeing is not true. And in a case like this, there's been this deep effort to rebrand it as about self-defense, about this right to self-defense. But it's always been, and very clearly so, about the fact that they approve of his conduct because they approve of who it was done to. And I think what evidenced that really loudly in a way that I appreciated was the other day when he did his interview with Tucker Carlson and he said he supported Black Lives Matter, which is an absolute falsehood. It is a falsehood. It's egregious that he would even say it. It's very bold. But what I loved and appreciated was the response from the people who support him. They were outraged. There were all kinds of quote tweets. Oh, we did all this to defend you and you go and do this. If it truly were about his right to self-defense and you believed it was self-defense and it isn't about hatred for the movement, it isn't about hating the protesters and the victims and Black Lives Matter, if it weren't about that and it truly were about the right to self-defense, what would it matter that he come out and say he supports Black Lives Matter? Why is that now called for you to abandon his cause if you so genuinely just supported him exercising his right to self-defense? Exactly. Well, in fact, we know that regardless of his views one way or another, that the right-wing media, particularly you referred to the Fox News Channel and others, they actually used Rittenhouse to promote their views on gun rights and you know the protest movement as somehow you know illegitimate and dangerous and so forth. That's what's going on. And I think another byproduct of this unfortunate circumstance is that particularly the right wing media you know, has really co-opted this and has used you know, the verdict to promote their own views of vigilantism, of promotion of uh, guns, white supremacy, unfortunately, and it's very, very dangerous. It's also when you look at the broader um, sentiments on the far right extremist spectrum, there are two narratives that are very dangerous right now that undermines democracy and all the values that we stand for here in America, which is first, the verdict that came out earlier about the Unite the Right rally organizers in Charlottesville, they were found guilty. But then you couple that with the Rittenhouse trial with the acquittal and the January 6th committee investigation. There are all these narratives lumped together in a very convenient kind of idea that the system is against these people and are unjustifiably prosecuting them and going after them for protecting themselves, which, I mean, if you think about the January 6th insurrection, it's ludicrous, right? But this is still a narrative that's very prominent and very potent and very believable in a lot of these online disinformation ecosystems. Secondly, there is this idea and this narrative that is growing stronger, which is very scary when you think about the midterms next year and the 2024 election is that this idea that there's no political solution. A lot of the very 
extreme, like the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis, they are arguing that there is no point in voting. There's no point in taking part of the political system because it's rigged against you. And the only solution is armed revolution and taking up arms. And these are narratives that are directly undermining our institutions, our democratic values, and what we came together as a country and agreed upon many hundreds of years ago. Well, that's absolutely true. And in that regard, you know, we're seeing manifestation of that with the January 6th insurrection against the Capitol, which was done based on a lie that somehow Joe Biden stole the election, of course, which is false because he won fair and square. But let me go back to our other colleague, Olayami Olurun, because Olayami, another trial and a verdict came out last week, which is an interesting counterpoint to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. And that is the one vis-a-vis Ahmad Arbery, this 25-year-old black man who was killed by uh, three white men. So we heard last week that three white men were found guilty of murder and other charges in the pursuit and fatal shooting of Ahmad Arbery, and we know this happened in Georgia. I'd like you to talk a bit about the meaning of that particular verdict and how it compares to the Rittenhouse verdict. The Ahmad Arbery case is extremely heartbreaking, and I really feel for his mother because Ahmad Arbery lived in that community, right? Like, imagine feeling a community you lived in, you consider your home so much so that you think you could go on a jog in broad daylight and to come face to face with the reality that you can't even run in your own neighborhood without being profiled and hunted down by three white men you don't know and killed. I don't even want to think about what he must have felt in that initial realization and what it must be for his mom and his family who have to continue living in that same community and family. And I hope that this verdict brings her some small semblance of peace because I watched the trial. I covered that trial daily on the Law and Crime Network. And I watched that woman sit in the court every day calmly while defense attorneys, they didn't just try to explain their clients' perspectives because it's one thing to say they believed that he had committed some robberies wrongfully. They wrongfully believed, but at the time, that's what they believed and that's why they did this. But that's not what they did. The defense went further. They actually tried to vilify him in his death, even in the closing, one of the defense said he's dead. He was gunned down by these men. And, you know, she says, oh, under his dirty toenails or something. It was the level of inhumanity her son was subjected to in his death, but what she was subjected to to have to sit in day in, day out in the trial and watch her kid be vilified. I can't even imagine. And I just pray that this verdict gives her some semblance of peace in dealing with her mourning because it can never bring a child back ever. And that's what's important, right? You know, we tend to look at these, these verdicts. It shocks your conscience. It inflames you when they don't convict because more often than not, they don't convict. But when they do, it's important to remember that this isn't justice. Justice is a system and a society where Ahmaud Arbery was safe to go on his run and he went home to his mother. That's justice. Justice is a world where we live, we live equally. Black people don't have to worry and fear about things like this. So what happened right now is the correct outcome, but a world that is just would be a world where it doesn't happen. So I'm just praying for his mother and I hope that she's able to get some peace and she's supported by community and love ones right now. Indeed. And of course, we have to hope that this is also a lesson for others who would try something similar, take the law into their own hands and assume a young black man who's taking a jog is somehow posing a danger. So I'm going to turn to Molly Saltzkoke. Molly, you get the last word with regard to the Ahmaud Arbery verdict where three white men were found guilty of his murder 
and to what extent that offsets or it somehow mitigates the lessons we were talking about with respect to the Rittenhouse verdict. Well, in the best of worlds, obviously, this will serve as a deterrent for any parallel justice system that anyone adhering to some form of hateful creed would take upon themselves and think that they can execute without punishment. My fear is obviously that it's very hard to win in the narrative of extremes, right? And so we've seen, and this goes back to the Cal Rittenhouse verdict, if he were to have been found guilty, he would probably be labeled as a marcher across chat application forums amongst these keyboard warriors. And this is obviously the fear with this verdict that we heard in the Arbery case. But what I want to end on and what I think is incredibly important is that we tend to think of the online space as siloed from the offline space. And our research at the Sufan Center has shown that within the extremist ecosystems that are often influenced by dis and misinformation, both by domestic actors but also by foreign adversaries like Russia and China. There are always people who move from the online extremist ecosystem to commit and mobilize towards acts of violence in the physical space offline, essentially. And I think this is something to keep in mind for policymakers, for thought leaders and so forth, that we have to really work hard and come together as a society for justice and to eliminate these very hateful online ecosystems that are flourishing, frankly, thanks to social media and other emerging technologies. And that we cannot discount the violence and the hate that is being perpetrated online as having no effect in real life, as both the cases that we've discussed here today. It has impacts on communities, on societies, on families, and for our democratic system and justice writ large. But I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this particular edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Molly Saltzkog. She's a research fellow at the Sufan Center and Olayami Olorun a public defender at the Legal Aid Society's criminal defense practice in New York City. Ladies, thank you so much for a meaningful and important discussion of the verdict in the Rittenhouse case and the Ahmad Arbery case as well. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.